this morning. We do start our brand new Advent series this morning that is entitled Wonder, looking at the sovereignty and the fullness and the grandness of God in this Advent season. Now, when you talk about wonder, an actual definition of wonder is a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. You have that sense of wonder and awe come over you. And I think when you're walking into Christmas time, when you're walking into an Advent season, of course, Christmas is a time of wonder. It's a time of awe. If you've ever seen a little kid at Christmas, you get a glimpse of it. You see their eyes light up, right? Christmas lights and Christmas trees and treats and, and breads and cakes and Everything that comes, like some of you are like wiping the drool off your face right now. It's the first snow. It's Christmas carols. It's hot cocoa. It's cookies. Any, any big fans of Christmas cookies in here? See, like cookies in general, like cookie, I like, I'm not a big fan of Christmas cookies. I don't know what people do to Christmas cookies, but they're always like a little hard and dry, aren't they? Is it me? Except my wife has one, like if you want a good Christmas cookie recipe, ask my wife for her ricotta cheese, sorry love, I just like ricotta cookies, ricotta cheese cookies, they're amazing from her, grand, oh, oof, goodness, now, I, now I'm drooling. Um, but man, all of those things wrapped up, especially in the eyes of a kid, create that wonder and that awe around the Christmas season. But when you're talking about the Advents, when you're talking about the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ, and what Christmas means for a believer, for someone who has heard the gospel and received the gospel by faith, that the Holy Spirit has illuminated our hearts, illuminated our hearts and minds to the beauty of Jesus, Christmas wonder is so much deeper. It's so much deeper than aesthetics or so much deeper than just the ambiance that's created around Christmas. The Christmas wonder goes in deep to the heart of men. The wonder of God, not just in his doing, but in himself, in his character, who he is, the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's my hope that over the next couple of weeks, that we will do two things, that we will step back and see the magnitude of God, right? When you think about the, the wonder and the awe that is found in God, that you would step back and you would see this huge, big picture, this cosmic picture of who God is, that we would see the magnitude of him, but that we would also, in turn, step in to the presence of God. As Josh um, got up here, um, as, he, it was, as we wrapped up worship, and we went to that time of prayer, and he's talking about Emmanuel, God with us. I'm sitting there going, man, he's stealing my notes. He's stealing the things that I'm, like, because what we have here is we have this wonder of God on this cosmic level. We have this wonder of God on this grand level. When you look at the stars at night and you feel so small, when you stare up at the heavens and you go, I don't know where that ends because I serve a God who does not end. But then also, when you press in, and you realize that that God who hung all those stars, that God that is eternal from the beginning to the end, God has always been. I know that God. 
that God loved me so much that he put on flesh. He put on flesh and he has walked this earth and he has experienced every single hurt and pain that you and I could ever, ever face. And he is so good and so sovereign and so close. And that closeness, that intimacy, that knowability fills me with wonder. Going, how could a God that big and that grand and that marvelous also be this close? What a beautiful thing for us as the church to experience this Advent season. If you have your Bible, let's flip to that uh, a portion of the Christmas story. And uh, we'll look at Matthew chapter 2 today. Matthew chapter 2, we'll, just, we'll start reading in verse 1. Now this was just after Christ is born. Because I want to look at some characters here this morning. And those characters are the Magi. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That's a, that's a huge statement. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. In the assembling, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them um, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, uh, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And God, we thank you for this season. It's been quite a year, as we've talked about quite a bit. We're coming into one of the most wonder-filled times of the year in the church calendar. There's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hustle and bustle that tends to come with this. But God, this year, I pray that we'd be filled with awe and wonder over you. So God, today in your text, please help us do that and then help us to respond. Help us to live lives of worship in wonder and awe of you. We love you, we thank you, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So who are the Magi? 
These wise men from the East. This week, uh, I found the research from uh, Hugh Weschel. He's an author, and he's a contributor for the Gospel Coalition. I found some of his research uh, quite compelling. And so some of the stuff that I'm going to tell you today, I've found through, uh, through a paper that he's written. But uh, the Magi, the word that's used for Magi is actually the root word of where we get magic or magicians. It was a term that was used for powerful men who belong um, from the east. They're from the east, so they were maybe Medes or Persians or, or maybe even Babylonians, and they're described as being wise men. And that, of course, is true because they studied the stars and they studied uh, prophecy and they studied um, many, many different fields, and they were wise men, but a better translation would actually be court astrologers. Um, Dr. Craig Chester, he's a, the past, uh, one of the past presidents of the Monterey Institute for Research in Astronomy. He says this of these wise men, of, of the Magi. He says, they are advisors to great and royal men, making forecasts and predictions for their royal patrons based on their study of the stars, about which they were quite knowledgeable. So these were court astrologers. They were working for noblemen. They were working for kings, and they would come with their predictions. They would come with their study, and they would inform and advise these great men like kings. It was not unusual for these magi to um, travel great distances and attend the birth or the crowning or the coronation of a king. It wasn't un unusual. This was something that these magi would do. They would travel great distances to pay their respects and to offer their gifts. So it's not surprising, therefore, that, that Matthew would mention them as a validation of Jesus' kingship or that Herod would have seen their arrival as a big deal. So when Herod sees these magi coming, since this was something that was done in that day, Herod would have known something big was happening. Something was up. There are actually other historical, historical recordings of the Magi visiting kings, uh, different emperors even. Uh, some of the emperors, like Nero himself, were met by um, other royalty and Magi to pay homage to King or to Emperor Nero. And Josephus uh, records that Magi also visited King Herod in about 10 BC. So King Herod himself. So it wouldn't be unusual. It wouldn't have seemed unusual in Jesus' day but also, it wouldn't have gone unnoticed. See, a Magi visit usually meant that there was someone notable nearby. Whether it was the birth of a king or the crowning of a king, it was kind of a big deal. And they were usually traveling in bands and groups with a great entourage. And they even carried with them soldiers for protection. So Herod and the people of Jerusalem would have known something was up. So these magi, these wise men, they were brilliant. They were studiers of stars, and they were studiers of writings and prophecy. They weren't quite like the astronomers and the astrologers of modern times because they didn't just use science. They didn't just use um, the, uh, their study of the stars, but they also used um, art, in poetry, in religion, in their study of the sky. And they would bring it all together to try to understand their universe and try to explain it to others. It wasn't just stars in astrology. 
Like I said, it was art and poetry and religion and prophecy all working together in the lives of the Magi. Many scholars think that these Magi from the East were probably quite familiar with even Jewish prophecy. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, that these Magi from the East, possibly from Babylon, maybe from Persia, that they would have been familiar with the writings of the Hebrew people and their prophets. So what was it about this star at this time that caused them to journey the hundreds, if not over a thousand miles to Bethlehem to seek out the one who is born King of the Jews? So some scholars think it's because these magi, these wise men, knew the prophecy of Daniel back in chapter 9 of Daniel. If you want to flip there, we'll, we'll read in just a moment. But before we look at that, do you remember the description that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the, the, the description or the office that he put Daniel in? Chapter 5, verse 11, it says this, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. They're speaking of Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your king, uh, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. So Daniel, of Daniel in the lion's dead, Daniel is appointed as the chief magician, the chief enchanter, the chief of the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. He's the chief of the magi. He's the chief of the astrologers, the one who studies the sky. And the magi of the nativity from the east, maybe from Babylon, would have almost certainly known the writings and the prophecy of Daniel. So like I said, let's look at Daniel chapter 9. In the beginning of chapter 9, it actually starts with Daniel's prayer of repentance. He's struck by the word of Jeremiah that the desolation of Israel must last uh, 70 years. And, and Daniel offers a prayer of confession for the sins of Israel. He um, offers prayers and pleas for mercy. And it says, with fasting and with sackcloth and ashes. That's a deep groaning of repentance. I was thinking about that this week as I read that. Like in my life and in your life, when we're overcome by sin, do you ever have those moments where you just know that deep within your heart and in your soul, you're just dirty, rotten, filthy sinner? Just me? Okay. You're all liars. All right, thank you. There's a hand. I see that hand. Like, and then my repentance that comes along with it. Like those moments where it, oftentimes it's just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God, I'll do better, I'll do better, I'll try harder, I'll try harder. But in biblical times, particularly in the Old Testament, when, they, when there was great sorrow and when there was great repentance, man, it was um, times of fasting, times of sackcloth and ashes where you would sit and you would put on, like, you would sit in ashes as a sign of your mourning over your brokenness and your sin. So Daniel, he's praying this prayer, this confession for the sins of not just him, but the sins of Israel, the sins of his people, prayers and pleas for mercy. And he prays to God to turn his wrath away from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up. 
Gabriel, the angel, shows up, and it says in verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come out to give you insight and understanding at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24 says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of this word, to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again, with squares and a moat in troubled times. And after sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off, and shall, and, and shall have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to, that, uh, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And then shall make a strong covenant, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for about a half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out, on the desolator. Everybody follow me here at this point? <laughs> this week, 62 weeks, 70 weeks, this week, that week, and another week. Sometimes it's tough when you're reading scripture, right? It's tough to understand. It's tough that, particularly with, with books of prophecy and things like that, it can be difficult to understand at times. So we're not going to dive into all the details of this word today. But I, did you notice um, the description in verses 24 through about verse 26 or so of the one who is going to come and put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring an everlasting righteousness. Do you see that? When you look at that, you see that Daniel is prophesying about the Emmanuel, about the Messiah, about the one who is going to come. Who is the one to put an end to sin? Who is the one who atones for iniquity? Who is the one who brings an everlasting righteousness? Who is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ? It's Jesus. Gabriel and Daniel here are talking about Jesus. Now when you read that, it says 70 weeks are decreed about your people. 70 weeks. What's the significance, right? Because if I do my math right, 70 weeks is about like a year and a half or so. Except most scholars think it's not actual weeks. The actual uh, Hebrew word that is here is literally translated sevens. It's translated 77s. And, and, and actually, most scholars think it's actually 77 sets of, of years. So we have 70 sets of seven years is probably the best way to put that. So roughly 490 years. It's actually similar to what you see in a passage like Leviticus chapter 25 in the year of Jubilee. When you, when you read that in verse 8, it says, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times, 
seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Okay, do you get that? So you have 70 groups of seven in our passage in Daniel. So Daniel, this chief of the Magi in Babylon, he prophesies of someone, the one who will put an end to sin, the one who will atone for iniquity, the one who brings an everlasting righteousness, the one who is the anointed one. And this person would arrive in about 490 years. And then this week, I read the account of Matthew. Right? I'm like, we're in the Advent season. Let's, just, let's kind of read through that again and refresh my memory. Matthew chapter 1 starts with genealogies. How many of you love genealogies? Right? That's, that's what you read all the time, right? You get to those parts, and, it's, and it, like, they're, they're so hard to pronounce. You, you'll notice that I do that up here, and I, I hate it. It's like you're just not quite confident to really own the word, right? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah and Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon. You guys still with me? Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz and Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, and, and uh, Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by wife of Uriah, the Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, uh, Abijah, the father of As Asaph, and there you go, I'll get it, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of uh, Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, uh, Uzziah, the father of Jothan, Jothan, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shealtiel, uh, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. Thank you. The father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eli, how do you say that one? Uh, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. All right? Now we did all of that. We said all of that. And it's not without meaning. There's a reason why it's there. It's the book of the genealogy of Jesus that ties Jesus all the way back to who? To King David, that he is in the royal line of David to prove once again that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was born king of the Jews. Verse 17 says this of Matthew chapter 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of, to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 
14 generations. 14, 14, and 14. How long is a generation? Most uh, scholars that I've run across this week put generation right about 35 years. So from the deportation of Babylon, right, right about the time of Daniel, to Christ, 14 generations at about 35 years apiece puts it at about 490 years or seven groups, 70 groups of seven. Pretty crazy. Pretty wondrous. Pretty notable that Daniel would prophesy about the one who would come. And right about that time, there were some magi in the east who studied prophecy and studied the sky and studied stars. And there was something so marvelous about the star. And I don't even know exactly what this star was. Some people are like, was it a nova? Was it a comet? Was it this? Was it, was it Jupiter and uh, Venus lining up? In, in, uh, right around the constellation of Leo, right? Some people say that Jupiter means kingship. There's kingship that's around Jupiter, and, and Venus there's as meanings around birth and, and childbirth, and then all of a sudden, lion, Leo, like the lion of Judah, and all of a sudden it's lining up, and there's this grand spect... Maybe. Maybe it was just a God thing. Maybe it was just a God star. I don't know. But they saw something in the sky, and they were looking and anticipating the birth of of the Messiah because they knew Daniel the prophet. They knew the, the chief of the Magi almost 500 years or so earlier. They were looking for the Messiah. The Holy Spirit led them to a stable, led them to Bethlehem, led them to, led them to the place where Jesus was. It probably wasn't still the stable at that point. It's wondrous. And it's meticulous. It's so detailed. On a cosmic level, it's, a, it's so grand and wondrous. There's this prophecy, this, these, these 300 messianic prophecies all fulfilled in Jesus. It's wonderful. But then I look at it and I go, there's also so much wonder on a personal level. There's so much wonder on a personal level between me and my God and the amazing things that he does. First off, that he wouldn't just even let me keep on going in my own sin. Ultimately, destined for destruction, destined for death, destined for separation, but somehow, some way, this God, the cosmic God of the universe that these magi, that these magi knew about, that they, 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 they read the prophecies, they knew the books, they knew the writings, that God, that cosmic, magnificent God, like I said, put on flesh to be my Redeemer, to stand in my place like he came to earth, lived a sinless life that I could never, ever, ever live, that thus fulfills the holy, righteous requirement of God's holy law. And when I put my faith in him, that righteousness is put on me. So when God looks down, he doesn't see a filthy, rotten sinner any longer. What he sees is his beloved son. That God of the heavens did that for me. And I'm filled with awe. How? Why? 
Should he choose me? How, why would he pick me to know him? This week I've been reflecting on my life, reflecting on my journey, and just trying to notice all the little ways that God himself, that the Holy Spirit has led me to this moment in my life. There were probably stars along the way that probably weren't so magnificent as the ones that the Magi saw that day, but they still led me to him. You know what I'm talking about? Those little moments, like what, were, what was the star in your life that led you to Jesus? What were those little markers? Do you remember what they were? Those little turns, those little hurts, those little pains. Maybe there was this big shakeup in your family. Maybe there was this death that overcame. Maybe there was um, great moments of sickness or, or, or heartache around your children or something like that. Some of those moments can be those great guiding moments like a star that would lead me to this Emmanuel, this God who is with me. This God who desires me to be with him. And so what is it in your life that has led you to this moment? See, it's my hope that when we're in this Advent series called Wonder, that we would note the magnificent nature of our God on a grand level. We're going to see a couple of videos from Jay over the next couple of weeks, um, and some of them are quite astounding. Some of the facts, some of the things that you realize that have unfolded, both in prophecy, but the things that you see in nature and in DNA and creation that are really quite astounding. And it fills me with awe on this grand uh, cosmic level. But also over these next few weeks, as we get into a season that can be really kind of rote, can be really kind of like, all right, here we go. Christmas trees are up. Lights are on, music's on, we're just kind of sailing through something. I also want to notice the magnitude and the intimacy of my God and be filled with wonder once again that he would love even me, that he came to this earth for even me. And so as we conclude, as the band comes, I want you to believe and be in awe of Scripture. I want you to read the prophecies from Isaiah or Daniel or the so many prophecies about Christ. I want you to be in awe and believe. I want you to see the wonder of God through the truth of his word. And I want you to see the big picture of his sovereignty and his grace for mankind. But this Christmas season, this Advent season, as we anticipate the return of Christ, I also want us to behold the wonder of him who personally called you to himself. This year has been filled with a lot of isolation. It's been filled with a lot of loneliness. This last week we, were, we had all-church prayer First Wednesday of the month, come on out and pray with us, please. We had a small group of us over in the cafe there, and we were praying together and just kind of went around the circle. and like, what is God putting on your heart to pray for? I just wanted to pray for loneliness, isolation. There's a lot of people feeling it right now. There's probably people in this room that have been feeling it in a big way. I want you to be gripped with wonder over the Emmanuel. God who's with you. It's a beautiful thing about the church. 
He's called a group of people to himself, not just to you. It's a beautiful thing about community and community groups. To be in each other's lives and to encourage each other, but to also just remind ourselves that we're not alone. The God of heaven loved you to die for you. He loved you to put on flesh and to experience all the corruption and just the horribleness of this world. Sounds really bleak, I'm sorry. But to feel all the corruption just like you did, just like you do, just like you've experienced this year, he's felt it all. And he's also the redeemer. He's the redeemer of all that stuff. He takes all things and he works it for his glory and he works it for our good. Man, we sang that truth this morning for us to stand in that and know that, to endure, to carry on, and then become proclaimers of the wonder of God. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the truthfulness of your word. I thank you, God, that you can see the plan of God when you hold the scriptures in your hand. You can see your plan to redeem me set in place a long time ago. Fill us with wonder, God. On a grand level, on a cosmic level, God, fill us with wonder this season. God, also in a very intimate and personal way, Jesus, fill us with wonder. God, let us be worshipers of you. When we're filled with that awe, let it spill over into worship and declaration of the wonder and the excellencies of him who's called us to your glorious light. 